Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. This time I've got George Church, professor at MIT and Harvard, biologist, one of the avant-garde in both reading genes and now writing genes at the foundation of CRISPR, the revolutionary technology for editing genes, and so many other areas. A thrilling discussion about how science and innovation work together. Your background, though, ranges well before the kind of informal culture that I think pervades universities. I feel like it was a a California-style innovation to create a more democratic and flat hierarchy between the sort of expert and the student. And uh, would you say it's customary now, even here on the East Coast at Harvard and MIT? Uh, Why don't I remember my first real advisor was Sung Ho Kim, and I called him Sung Ho Nye. And he was from MIT, and I was was at Duke at the time. So I'm not sure that California can take full credit, but I'm willing to give them 90%. (laughs) Well, it's kind of you uh, to include me in that circle. I mean, your contributions are so big that I don't want to just ask you about them one by one and get you to just sort of tick them off. Instead, I want to ask about what has motivated you in your work. I think, you know, as an early career researcher, you must have been pointed somewhere. And I wonder how your initial drivers have evolved over time. Did you mean to reinvent humanity when you (laughs) got started? Maybe not that. I, I think I did have a sort of a longer term vision or delusion than most kids did, but not what you just said. You know, I think I was addicted to almost all forms of science. I did not want to specialize. That was one of my earliest decisions, I guess. And then as soon as I got a taste of some really hard sciences, crystallography really involved a lot of physics, math, and uh, chemistry, I thought I wanted to apply everything I learned there to biology, which was less automated, less computational. And then I immediately sort of felt like uh, one thing that would be good would be sequencing everybody on the planet. That would be a good start. And uh, this was back in mid-70s when really the largest thing that anybody had sequenced was around uh, 80 base pairs long. And, uh, and that was the work of a whole lab for years. Um, but it just seemed like a simple extrapolation. At that time, I didn't really know about Moore's Law, but I guess I had intuitively felt that these things would move quickly. And so then... Well, I mean, does it mean that you did not consider it impossible because the linear calculation in 1977 would have put you a thousand years out before you got to what you wanted? Oh, yeah, yeah. Billions of person years. But yeah, I guess I must have intuitively felt there was some exponential there or, or some other reason that, or maybe a quantum jump and that maybe I could be part of that. I guess I sort of felt that the, the sort of thing I was seeing in crystallography could be scaled up and applied to biology and genetics. And that attitude opened up a lot of doors. A few years later, I did learn about exponential technologies many years later, and then I realized what I had been doing better and then started harnessing it even more. For, and so almost everything I've touched since then has gone exponential, either because I wanted it to be that way or just because I was just kind of stumbling in the same direction over and over again. But computers, internet, reading, DNA, writing DNA, proteins, synthetic biology, all these things are on exponential scale. Is that the basic attitude that a person might have about things that look impossible? Or is it a rational insight against such problems that help you 
differentiate between those that are impossible just, and those they, that are They just never really struck me as impossible. And I'm not a big fan of the words. A lot of things that get labeled as impossible turn are not even that hard. And even some things that are classified as impossible in physics, they're only impossible if you accept a bunch of premises, you know, a bunch of assumptions that aren't necessarily correct. I don't know how rational it was, but I happened to be in the right place with the right delusion. Yeah, and you humbly describe it that way, but unpacking it just a little bit, when the few sentences it actually doesn't seem like you thought it was a delusion, it, it feels like you had an intuition and feeling about actually how you might disaggregate and do one step to give you five steps next and 50 steps after that. Yeah, yeah. Is it a thing you counsel your students on? I mean, is it a, a mindset that you think is a core part of how to aim for really Oh, I would say that, yeah, my students get a lot of intentional and unintentional exposure to concepts of exponential growth. You, you don't want to over or underestimate it. You want to get a pretty accurate beat on it. It's actually pretty hard. I mean, just recognizing it's exponential is the core thing. But there are many other things, I think, that make our particular team work that make it unusual. And that's just one of them, but they're kind of interconnected in various ways. So some of the other ones are that it's a team of interdisciplinarians. So it's not just an interdisciplinary team of disciplinarians, but it's made up mostly of people that already have, for one reason or other, done a couple of different, wildly different fields. It's also a kind of an antithesis of the Apollo motto, which is failure is not an option. You know, our team kind of embraces failure. And if we can't, but we want to do it fast and if we can't do it fast as say fail fast we'll, we'll put the idea up on the wall for display rather than throw it in the trash can for oh yeah that was a bad idea and so there's almost nothing that really totally left behind forever that just keep adding fields to my collection and adding projects that look difficult and then someday you wake up and you realize oh that's not hard anymore and you just do it Part of it is accumulating new fields. Part of it is accumulating new failures. There's nothing that fails more often than an experiment, I don't think. But it is a part of the core religion of Silicon Valley these days, the sort of self-congratulatory feeling that maybe the Silicon Valley culture has invented family of processes to fail fast and iterate and change and move over time for business culture and for technology development. And, you know, folks have gone so far as to give it names. I guess there's, like, you know, this agile development or agile product stuff. There's the, the rapid prototyping or IDEO style human-centered design, which centers a lot on, on just making and trying things. And of course, there's the lean startup community, which um, tries to make contact with the customer as early as possible and try to get revenue and iterate a lot and change and later, not invest early. And in a way, there's harmonics between all three of them. And to me, an observation I've had over some time is that it actually just looks like science. And I guess you're saying that's how you do science. Yeah, I think it's a particular category of science, though, because there's some science that has very long lead times and kind of more slogans, you know, like the war on cancer. Sometimes it, it, it takes so long that it's considered misguided or oversold. But then there's a, I think where the Silicon Valley culture and I came from was, you know, I started programming and building computers when I was 10. And computers have a particularly fast fail failure rate. That is to say, you can write a line of code, hit return, and it says, you know, no go, and you realize that that line of code you wrote was wrong, and then you immediately fix it. You can, like, go through several iterations in a few seconds. That's what, and once you get addicted to that kind of dopamine instant high, then you start moving into slightly slower, but still the attitude is there. 
that the process can work as you generalize it and step by step you make the circle bigger, I guess, until you're chasing bigger exactly bigger yeah. goals. Yeah, and I wonder, but, do you? But, but do you so, take that to an ultimate extreme in biology, where instead of making rapid a rapid prototype and failing, you can make a trillion rapid prototypes and fail a trillion times in a few minutes, uh, because biology is one of the few engineering disciplines where you really can make a large number of things simultaneously that, that are meaningfully different. Do you think the origin point really is computing? Is the experience of your peers and colleagues uh, in the early days of computing, is that, do you think that's where we really broadly construed, just learn to... Yeah, I think it's, it's one of the return. places where you could, yeah, there's one of the places where you have, the stakes are so low, you know, it's like, if I mess up this computer program, it's not the, like the computer's going to melt. But with Apollo, if you make a mistake, you're going to blow a billion dollars in several human lives in a very spectacularly public way that could risk the entire congressional funding. I can understand why they had a failure is not an option attitude and, and why we have, have a failure is an option. But then you combine that with a particular synthetic biology component, which is you know, generating many mutants and multi, molecular multiplexing, where you can put lots of eggs in lots of baskets, you know, trillions of them. That's maybe even more steroids than, than the programming culture. The canvas is so much bigger. I don't know any computing system that lets a programmer deploy one trillion parallel processes right now and repeat them every minute or every hour. But I guess the brain probably lets you do that. And perhaps there's other environments where you do that. I was thinking of uh, laboratory evolution. But yes, the brain is quite remarkable as well. I don't think we fully appreciate how sophisticated it is. In biological engineering, including neurobiological and developmental biology, biological engineering has two big advantages over other classical, even electrical engineering, electronics, is that two big things. One is you're inheriting the vast uh, trial and error engineering-like behavior of evolution. You're collecting all these trinkets from all over the world that took three billion years of trial and error. Plus, you can do accelerated evolution in the lab where you can do trillions of things which are seem trivial by comparison to the three billion years over you know, the whole surface of the Earth but it's not being able to do it in the lab because you can guide it. You can actually do things that are uh, unprecedented, both in electrical engineering and in ancient evolution. Now, you talked about accumulating failed experiments, but also accumulating discipline. And the way you sort of introduced that idea was, you know, being a, you know, a student or a, a young researcher and just finding that you could master lots of things, first one, then another, then another. And, you know, that sounds like a polymath that in your head are the resources to learn a lot and learn some really hard stuff and then go right next door and learn another thing and then integrate them together and, and keep moving. And and it sounds different from another idea that's sort of been floating around for a while. And I don't know uh, how familiar you are with this idea from philosophy that a bunch of people have been expanding over the last four or five decades. It came from an essay by Isaiah Berlin about Tolstoy, he quotes this old Greek poet, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. Philip Tetlock at the University of Pennsylvania has been using that idea in his work around super forecasting and decision sciences and pointing out how some different habits of mind have different aptitudes for certain kinds of problems. And the fox, who is quite measured and quite broad and loosely joins many different areas of information he finds, is a habit of mind that is more effective by a large margin than the hedgehog that goes super deep and creating 
complex and detailed system, but one that is insensitive to the observations of others. And perhaps the fox might resemble some aspects of your polymath, but in the sort of classical fox, they're not an expert. They're not a master of both, you know, crystals and embryos. And I wonder just first on this like polymath versus fox idea, how you feel about either of those concepts and those distinctions and whether they resemble your, your own experience. Yeah. So I, I, I think Polymath might get closer to it, what ha- or polyglot even, where once you learn a few languages, you see how languages go. And so the problem with the fox versus the hedgehog is it kind of a, implies a, a sort of superficial versus deep, while in fact polymath might be more like a bunch of deep holes and you get a bunch of you know deep holes that, where you learn what they might have in common and how to learn more. And that sort of the intersectional exercise is itself a specialty. It's like kind of you're the hedgehog of multidisciplinary. Something, you know, I'm, I'm probably not making much sense, but the point is I think it's more mastering the process of learning and putting together multiple things. And it is fairly specialized. It's not like the world needs a bunch of these people necessarily, or have, it certainly doesn't have a bunch. It is a specialty that you can master if you in the right place, the right time, and have that predisposition. It's not for everybody. It's like, you know, like not everybody wants to do the high wire act without a net. I like your analogy to language, and it is a, a big idea from Chomsky in the 20th century that languages, although they look real different from a distance, share a deep structure. And it's certainly someone who's learned three or five or eight that can feel that to be most true. You probably wouldn't go so far as to say every discipline has a single common structure, but that is, you find they rhyme, I guess, as you start digging into a certain area, that there's sort of ways of structuring and understanding a new field and getting perhaps to a level of mastery in it faster than the first time or the fifth time or the tenth time. It's something like that, right? I mean, or or do you actually believe in in some kind of mystical deep structure of of all knowledge, I, I would love to hear you say yes to that, but I, I, I doubt you will. I, I think there's an element of that. I think there's, it's, I'm big on demystification, so I wouldn't go whole hog on that, but I think there's a, you know, there's like, like this meme of if you spend 10,000 hours doing anything, you become kind of the world expert at that. Well, if you spend 10,000 hours working on uh, learning things, of a diverse nature and intersecting nature and trying to find the connections between them, you get pretty good at that. And that's one thing that is, it's kind of like a positive feedback loop. A lot of the exponentials that we're talking about are about positive feedback loops or autocatalytic cycles. And I think this is one of them. Your typical sort of named university chair, tenured departmental hero professor would often counsel, I think even today, that the early career student ought to behave more like a hedgehog than a fox, ought to lock down and button up some true depth and mastery of the department that they're in and the work that's in front of them and make sure that you go find out how to find new things and make that dissertation novel and and all that. And to me, as a young person, I think it certainly was true of our increasingly professionalized system of education here in America, where at an early age, people are getting really deep into a bunch of very technical matters and not being asked to be very broad and foxy learners. You've, I think, given some good reasons to appreciate a different way. And I wonder, what is your posture about our most elite institutions now and how you entertain that question from your young and impatient students who say, yeah, 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 I'm halfway through this electrical engineering degree, but I really want to see how it applies to music. I'm going to go do that for a year. I don't think, you know, every student needs to 
be multidisciplinary, but if you're going to build a multidisciplinary team, it helps to build it mostly of such students, which means that those students you're going to counsel differently than every than the bulk of students. The bulk of students you're going to say, yes, you should really master one field very well. You should become a world expert. Uh, but if you're building a multidisciplinary team, sometimes it's good to get people while they're still young and haven't ossified and still flexible and they can wrap their head around a great deal of ambiguity that comes from integrating two very different fields. So you can't really build on older people so easily. Some, there are few, there's plenty of exceptions. But so anyway, so you have to give them this somewhat generally counterfactual or at least contrarian viewpoint, which is that even though they are at the point in their career where most people should specialize at least for a while, um, you're going to give them advice that no, there is an alternative for a small subset of people. I think if everybody did it, we might have a problem. Even if a majority did it, we might have a problem. But there's some kind of optimal mix. Uh, Sandy Petland at MIT Media Lab has done a bunch of work on something he calls social physics. And in a way, it gets at this. It's like a composition of a team, even with folks with purely less expertise and capability, often performs better than a team of hard-headed, can't-show-me-different-type experts, partly because of the way they behave with each other when there is a less expert person in the room and the creativity that that engenders. It doesn't have as its chief aim to end up with a recommendation that says, hey, universities, companies, please take on board diversity and inclusion. It doesn't make a sort of social and political argument there. But I read that stuff and I read the sort of map you were just laying out of a real well-functioning team with lots of different types of folks in it. I sort of read it almost as a prescription for that and an argument for that, for, you know, a system that has more open doors, more points of view, you know, works hard to find other folks that perhaps on paper don't look as qualified or look qualified in the wrong thing. Do you think I, that's too fast a, a connection between a handful of these ideas, or do you sort of feel that sort of social consequence no, I, as well? No, I think that's, I think that's, uh, that's about right. Uh, I, I've spoken with Sandy a little bit. Uh, I don't know whether we're fully aligned, but that sounds about right. And I could be wrong on, on what the right, I, I haven't even stated what the right ratio is of, of foxes and hedgehogs, but the world isn't quite ready to have 100% foxes, but maybe uh, with the transition, it, it could be a much higher ratio than I currently think is suitable. So what is the right composition? For example, I know that you're really close to Ed Boyden, and I have friends that have ended up in his lab who come from a bunch of wacky fields that you and I would not have recruited to my teams and my companies where we thought we we're real wacky and we're not even doing science. Is, you know, is he even further out than you, or are you guys similarly thinking? And, you know, I think, what, we're, how would I you... think we're, fairly, we're fairly similar. You know, we're about 24 years apart, but we've, we've got a lot of collaborations. We've got like three grants together and a, a few shared students and postdocs. Uh, yeah, I think we're probably more aligned than any two randomly chosen labs, or for that matter, any two labs that either of us could pick. But it's a curious, I mean, neither one of us is are typical, So, but we managed to find each other. Yeah, so then, yeah, then I, how do I, you do it? I mean, how would you summarize, if you, you don't have to speak for him, certainly, but I, but I wonder how would you sketch it? Like, when does it feel like you've got the right mix? How, what's the weirdest person you've recruited to one of your teams? Well, what I was talking about ratio is ratio in the world. The ratio in my lab is very high. I mean, you know, I'm thinking maybe 80% foxes, but in the world, I think 1% is adequate. 0% would be, I think, would be disastrous uh, because we act as kind of glue 
that glues together all the hedgehogs. So I don't know what the right ratio is in the world, but in my lab, definitely, if you bring in too many disciplinarians, they don't, like you said, they don't want to, uh, they're impatient with the other disciplinarians because they're idiots in their field, uh, even though they're geniuses in their own, in the other field. So, and multidisciplinarians are kind of like masters of none, uh, or at least that's the way they're perceived by, you know, true deep experts. Most workspaces today, are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. As far as I can tell from limited work, because people don't really take Fox and Hedgehog seriously, I don't think in the field of psychology, they, they doubt it has realism. So it is not a sort of naturally occurring fact about people in their view, and it's not that durable. However, in other areas when, you know, Tetlock is, is working with such folks, he, he does find a lot of robustness in it. And so leaving aside its realism, as far as I've seen in some of the work, there's a lot of foxes. I mean, it might be half. A lot of people are a little looser, a little broader, a little less specialist, and a little bit more open to 55% judgments instead of 100% judgments on questions. And I think those are some of the things that Tetlock would use to characterize them. It sounds like in your thinking, though, on this distinction, since it isn't like some kind of technically rigorous distinction, it sounds like in your thinking, part of it is a taste for creative problem solving over control and process design. Yeah, creative problem solving. Although, you know, the control and process comes in, like a lot of the people in my group and in Ed's or more in mine, engineers. There's a kind of the whole engineering discipline combined with the whole, like, wacky creativity, nothing's impossible attitude. You have been there at the moment of creation for, and I don't mean Genesis, although I guess you're working on regenesis, the um, the moment of creation for a bunch of just huge, huge ideas. And I think one of the, the really huge ideas that's sweeping through our entire civilization right now are the consequences of synthetic biology and CRISPR in particular. And I don't want to ask for just like a historically fastidious description of that, but rather in the context of what we've been talking about, how did it come about? If you look at it post hoc, these forces yeah, I would at work say, and yeah, I would say that uh, the real revolution was more reading and writing DNA, not so much synthetic biology kind of came later because reading, writing, DNA were, is really the most robust exponential that I've seen. It's certainly on a par with electronics and Internet, but probably faster during most of, its, most of that lifetime. Most of the exponential has happened since uh, the turn of the millennium, around 2000. And from around 2003 to, to 2013, about a decade, it, it was going 
five to ten times faster than Moore's Law by most criteria, both for cost and quality. So at the beginning of the Genome Project, for example, we were debating as to whether we would have a 1% error rate, and now we're debating whether, you know, one in a billion is the right uh, quality metric. So that's seven orders of magnitude there, plus it dropped in price from $3 billion for a bad genome, meaning not clinically applicable technologies, to now around 600 bucks for a uh, a very high quality clinical grade, you know, with interpretation. So now, how does that lead to synthetic biology? Well, you, it's really hard to write or edit without being able to read. Anybody who's ever tried to edit something without being illiterate, it's hard. And by read, I would include hearing the verbal language if you're doing oral tradition. So if you can't hear or, or see or read, then you're going to have trouble changing things. The CRISPR revolution, which I should be the chief advocate and uh, cheerleader for, to me, has been pretty flat. I mean, if you look at the CRISPR and the two methods just before it, they're almost exactly the same price, and they're all collectively lower quality than the previous revolution before zinc fingers, talons, and CRISPR, which was homologous recombination, for which Smithies and Capecci got the Nobel Prize. But back in the 80s, we were doing precise editing at not that much lower efficiency or cost or, or higher cost than uh, zinc fingers, talons, and CRISPR. But certainly in the last few revolutions, as the zinc finger nucleases are over a decade old, it's been pretty flat in terms of cost and quality. So it let me agree with you then that you know reading the genome is one of the most eye-popping exponential growth. I mean, improving by what I think it was like 10,000 times every decade for the last two and a half decades. So those folks then. At that moment of creation, you and your colleagues at that moment, Francis Collins, Craig Bentner, you guys are all foxes around the table? Some. You know, so I think the key transition wasn't the genome project. The genome project, like I said, was way overpriced and didn't deliver a technology that was useful at all in the clinic. We had to reinvent it with next generation sequencing. So I would say that the inventors of next generation sequencing, which was you know, 454, ion torrent, uh, solid ABI, Alexa, links. Those were, I'd say, a lot of them were were pretty deep engineers. They were not necessarily all over the place, and they were focused on highly multiplexed chemical reactions, basically where you'd have millions or billions of reactions occurring in a droplet or in a flow cell. And I think they got confuse the public, and, and actually most scientists got confused into thinking, no, it's all about parallelism, where you fill a room up with machines. That's the revolution. That was not the revolution. That that just spent money faster, didn't save money. But save money was this multiplexing, which was inspired by Edison in 1874 with the telegraph, where you could send four messages on one telegraph wire. This idea of molecular multiplexing, I wouldn't say it's, a, it's neither fox nor hedgehog. It was, it was just something that was maybe inevitable, but it was uh, kind of a spark that you see over and over again, resulting in these huge technical and societal changes. There are so many huge trains running at the moment at accelerating speeds in your field and adjacent. It's kind of hard to track them or to pick one or to see how they combine exactly. And I wonder if, as you look forward a bit, are there a handful of cosmic notions along the lines of, of this one from, I guess it's 44 years ago when you thought it might be nice to, geno to index sequence every genome of every person in the world? 
Well, that particular one's I don't think it's hit its most revolutionary, most disruptive phase, which is when uh, right now we have maybe a million people out of 7.7 billion that, that have their genome. In fact, most of them don't have it. They, it's been sequenced and they don't know it. When you get 7.7 billion people or even 2 billion people who have and know and can benefit from their genome, then you've got a bigger revolution. Exactly what they'll do with it, we know about as much about that as we knew what we were going to do with the, the internet back in 68. I was first exposed to computer networks. I mean, I don't think any of us were saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going we're gonna to have uh, Amazon selling books over the internet. It was more like, oh, we won't need punch cards. Won't they be neat? <laughs> so, I have the sense uh, it may not be completely accurate that you have started more companies than any researcher I know started or co-founded or been close to. I sometimes feel like 100 is a lot, but I suspect your name is against many more Delaware C-Corps and Massachusetts LLCs than, than I'd be able to enumerate. I mean, that's not a goal, but it has it has happened as a side effect. Like 2018, just the postdocs in my lab alone started 16 companies with me as a co-founder. I didn't insist at all. I didn't even suggest, but it happens. So yeah, it's, it's again, it's one of these autocatalytic exponentials. You get good at something and everybody wants to uh, participate in that. It, it acts kind of as a beacon and the beacon brings in more people that are similarly inclined and uh, it gets easier and easier to train them because they already basically come with the uh, with an idea that's consistent with what's been working in the recent past. That Whatever curve impression. No, not, I don't think it's past 100 that I have personally co-founded. So co-founding is kind of a strict definition, but it's it's over 100 that I have participated in from very early stages and have, have consulted for and so forth. I've been involved in almost all of the next-gen sequencing ranging from nanopore to fluorescent in situ, almost all the writing methods. There's now a new generation of DNA writing that's enzymatic writing, and I'm involved in 10 of almost all of those. And then editing, I've been involved in a good fraction of the editing companies. Is there an upper bound to the productivity of that reaction, or are you going to start 100 companies in 2020? I can't imagine that that would be productive, but the, on, because <laughs> I, I, keep, I keep getting surprised by what you know makes sense once you have some momentum, a good team. It's all about teamwork, really. It's not about me, personally. And, uh, and so I'm just kind of I'm being there. <laughs> I'm Chauncey Gardner. <laughs> the uh, themes you just enumerated, where you've got bundles of companies, I mean, they make sense. Is there, is there a theme or a direction that you're waiting for someone to come to you with? There's always a certain number of projects that either I can't think of how to make them catch fire in public or can't, fire, you know, can't figure out how to get investors interested or worse yet, can't even get anybody in my lab interested in it. I'm not very dictatorial. And even if I were, you know, these most of these projects you can't achieve by brute force or twisting arms that you have to get people who believe true believers just like you are or I am. And uh, so at any moment, there's a steady state of wild ideas, which a few decades ago, I would say everybody's justified to reject, but now they're rejecting them less. 
but there's still a, an abundance of them. I could list them for you if you want. But uh, yeah, do you want to give but, a couple of advertisements? I think that you may have a unique audience listening to yeah. this episode of folks who are enthusiasts for the topic, but also fellow travelers in the world of entrepreneurship yeah. who are just waiting to hear a powerful idea that needs their attention. Well, so I'm not saying these are powerful ideas. I'm saying this is the bottom of the barrel of things that, that <laughs> for which I, I can't find a wild eye investor, a smart or well, dumb. Well, Fleming money. was not experimenting I, on penicillin, and so there may be things in your lab have right. gone unattended. I don't want to misrepresent these as being good ideas. That's the main thing. But, you know, these are things that haven't quite figured out how to fully deploy them. Some of them have been mentioned publicly. Anyway, so one of them is how to get everybody their genome. So we've brought the price down, so it's, the cost down to about $600, and the price is close to zero because we know how to recover that $600 from you know various sources. Nebula Genomics has a business model where we can recover that from either researchers who are willing to pay that amount to get access to good cohorts and high-quality data. Uh, or healthcare interests like insurance companies could could pay for it to avoid Mendelian diseases. But nevertheless, so the 600 to, is zero because there's anonymous and depersonalized uses for the data exhaust of somebody's submission of their genome. But getting correct. it to show up. Exactly. You know, there have been anti-vaxxers since before Jenner, since, you know, 1500s China, you know, and there all probably always will be. But in addition, there's kind of the broad societal rejection, which is happening now. I mean, we've got, you know, a tiny fraction of a percent of people who think this is a good idea. It had at least three components, two of which we've solved. Not necessarily everybody knows that we've solved them. So the, the price is gone. It's, it's now zero, effectively. The privacy is probably solved. Uh, we have homomorphic encryption and blockchain. Which are new inventions. Fairly recent. It's going to take a minute for everyone yeah, to Well, exactly. They're barely, they're barely they're brand new. And then finally, there's the, the understanding of utility. And so it's like I'm, the analogy I make is with seatbelts. The seatbelts, they were zero dollars. They were already in your car. In fact, it was illegal not to buckle them. But still, people didn't buckle them. They would instead be scanning the horizon for law enforcement agents that, that might make, force them to buckle them. There are examples of things which are good in the, for the public health but they have a very low probability of affecting you personally. And so you have a tendency of feeling like you're lucky. I don't personally feel that I'm lucky with something that has such disastrous outcomes as strong Mendelian disease or a, a fatal automobile accident, but a lot of people do. And that's kind of what we're dealing with. So one of the, one of my top four not completely funded ideas yet is, uh, is a dating service that would, instead of doing Current dating genetics is all about HLA and whether you like somebody or not. This would be about whether or not you like them. You don't want to have extremely, you want to, you don't want to inflict an extreme Mendelian disease on anybody, any children. So that's number one. This is a great one. I like this one a lot. Yeah. I think you're going to get some takes. Okay. Second one would be that if we're going, we need to get off the planet. I think there's a lot of agreement among, especially among very wealthy people because we're a sitting duck for asteroids and supervolcanoes and, and solar flares, uh, which could wipe out at least civilization, if not all life. So, And there are other reasons to get off the planet as well. But the thing is, we're treating it as a pure physics and chemistry thing. It's just like, as long as we know how to get chunks of metal, uh, we can just put people in them. And I think we're missing a lot of biological and uh, social psychological components. And we really should be practicing colonies on Earth because the consequences are we can we can fail a lot more times and a lot faster, it's a lot cheaper. So the idea is to establish a cost-effective way to produce 
hundreds, thousands of colonies on Earth. And so if they fail for either social or biological reasons, you just open the door and you're back on Earth and it's no harm, no foul. But if they fail on Mars or Europa or something, then you got a much more less humane and more expensive problem. Now, on this one, the characterization of the problem, I I certainly agree with, and it's necessity. I'm not yet quite as excited about its commercial. So then the the shorter-term commercial component is that you can create an environment where you you can have no sick days, in other words, no infectious diseases, and no commute. Basically, you're in a sealed environment, um, and you have to be part of the economy where that works. Uh, which I think is a growing part of our economy. Uh, you know, relatively little in our ec- economy is, well, a, a growing amount of it can be achieved from a sealed container in, in one place. We don't really have to travel as much as we do. We don't really have to uh, shake hands and spread contagions the way we do. So this, this should appeal. So to sort of framing this theme as like a future better city somewhere between like a Levittown and a Hausmannian Paris, 1848, 1846, something like something along those. Yeah, lines. but it's also it's also a biosphere where you, where it's small enough that you can actually prove that you're doing full recycling, which is a prerequisite, I think, for most or at least the most extreme form of colonies. And also, if if we ever do have some kind of uh, unfortunate uh, pandemic or intentional or unintentional. This would be a hedge against that. There's just a whole bunch of reasons. It doesn't have to be everybody. It just has to be somebody that feels that this is a, a, a cool thing to do, and then you've got your market. Very interesting. Uh, care to that's, market a third for me? Well, third is very easy to state. Uh, it's hard to fill in the details, but it's easy to state because it's probably the thing that's talked about our lab the most is, is, uh, is Arctic uh, engineering, geoengineering of the Arctic, so that the, the 1,400 gigatons of carbon doesn't melt and go up in methane into the atmosphere. And we're doing that um, by some combination of better photosynthesis and or better uh, elephants. So uh, cold-resistant elephants using uh, mammoth DNA is one of, the, of, of a few things we're doing to get carbon sequestration. So rather than trying to delay the inevitable and fight over nine gigatons per year, uh, which is a kind of the standard thing that we fight about, that's the total output of the whole human race, uh, let's let's come up with a win-win where you can uh, sequester hundreds of gigatons and keep 1,400 gigatons from being released. So it seems like they're bigger stakes and uh, less belt tightening to get there uh, for this Arctic engineering. So now I can uh, see, as if you've laid these out, why some of them haven't had so many takers just yet. <laughs> but I, uh, I do feel a lot of conviction for your genome dating idea. I think that one is going to be in market very soon. Professor Church, thank you so much for spending some time on In the Know to share your experiences in creating ideas and, and some of the ideas you're still working on. Yeah, my pleasure.